you want to create a portfolio that deals with the risks, uh, but also gives you upset options to the opportunities. And the biggest threats to your portfolio will always be inflation and stagnation. Um, so you need to find ways in your portfolio to address those and preferably, as I mentioned earlier, via SAA, because it's a structural cycle risk and it can take a long time to actually manifest itself in asset prices. So, so, so that's the way I think about it. I just want to have these uh, kind of ways to tilt the portfolio uh, without being too aggressive on taking a view on these things. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another edition in our Global Macro Series, where today, as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Jim Kassang, as well as our very special guest, Christian Müller-Gliesmann, who is the head of asset allocation research at Goldman Sachs, to try and make sense of how investors should allocate their capital in an ever-changing global environment. Welcome to the show, Christian, and thank you for joining Jim and I for what promises to be a lively and very insightful conversation as part of our Global Macro Series. How are you doing? Where do we find you today? I'm in London. Thanks so much for having me. Um, thanks to technology, seems to be working all well. Absolutely. And what about you, Jim? Where are you chiming in from today? Chicago, back home, kind of getting back in a routine here. Uh, you know, post-Labor Day, everything gets started. So uh, back in the, the pilot seat. Good stuff. Now, before we dive into all the kind of hardcore investment stuff, Christian, uh, what I'd love to do is if you could just help us set the stage a little bit, just provide our audience with some context as to how you went to head up the asset allocation research at Goldman Sachs. How how did you get there? What's your path? Yeah, I mean, listen, I've been at Goldman now 20 years or so, and um, I started out here after university. And I actually started in derivatives trading. Um, I've always had a bit of a quantitative um, affinity, let's say it like that. And um, then I kind of got the opportunity to join a team that develops quantitative um, investment strategies, focusing a bit more on micro angles. Um, one of the big things we were looking at at the time, which a lot of people know me for, um, have been dividend swaps. Um, that's one of the markets where we were kind of some of the innovators um, developing um, kind of dividend swap related strategies in the early 2000s. And then I moved over to macro strategy kind of 15 or so years ago. And originally I focused a bit more on equity, but um, over the last uh, 10, 15 years, um, there's been this huge shift towards multi-asset investing. And um, considering it's a bit more quantitative, there's often derivatives involved, there's often kind of like more modeling involved. Um, that's kind of where I've migrated to and I've been doing it now, yeah, more than a decade, very happily. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Sounds uh, exciting and, and just what we'd like to uh, get into. So let's kick things off and maybe to kind of warm up our conversation, perhaps I could ask you to share kind of your current big picture macro framework as uh, I recently heard you talk about inverse Goldilocks scenarios and all of that good stuff. So perhaps you can uh, talk a little bit about what that all uh, means and, and where you see the environment right now. Yeah, listen, I think when I think about asset allocation, I always look at three cycles. There's the sentiment cycle, the business cycle, and the structural cycle. The structural cycle is your longer-term trend in growth, inflation, policy. And I think um, there's a lot of uncertainty about what the structural cycle in the next uh, 10 to 20 years is going to look like. Um, it's very likely to look quite different to what we had in the last 10 to 20 years. And we can discuss that. Um but certainly the, the kind of focus right now into year-end for us has been much more the interaction of the business cycle with the sentiment cycle, which is a bit more short-term relevant. And you mentioned it already, um, what we've been writing, what we've been saying is that since the beginning of the year, a lot of investors were surprised by the strength of the risky asset recovery and how well markets have performed, how risk premium have compressed, how volatility has settled. And normally when we kind of talk about these very risk-friendly backdrops, um, they happen during Goldilocks. They happen in periods where growth accelerates without inflation. And that, for obvious reasons, is good, no? because it, it generates good outcomes for risky assets without a drag from higher rates. Um, we haven't had that this year. The growth backdrop hasn't really improved. Um, the uh, real thing that happened is that inflation has come down. So I call it a bit like an inverse Goldilocks. It's not like growth picking up with inflation staying where it is. It's more like inflation coming down with growth staying where it is. And it's not everywhere uh, the case that growth has stayed where it is. It's particularly the, the US. I mean, the US has been remarkably resilient. And I think that that has been the big surprise. You can have a soft landing and disinflation. That is something most investors haven't been um, uh, prepared for. But I think in our research, we found for quite a few times now significant disconnects between growth, inflation, and policy. Like when people think about business cycle investing, they often have this template that growth picks up, inflation picks up, central banks tighten policy, growth goes down, inflation goes down, central banks ease policy, you start fresh. But what we learned in the last 20, 30 years is that it's not working like that anymore. You have much more periods where growth picks up without inflation, and sometimes policy gets tightened without inflation, um, and, and there's huge disconnects between these three variables. And that's why it's so interesting. So, so to me, that's kind of the, been the big surprise, that you can have inflation coming down without the growth damage, especially in the US. So that's the inverse Goldilocks. I think the challenge you have from here, as you were asking, kind of what's our view, is that everything I'm telling you is quite well reflected in markets. I think when you look at the sentiment cycle, we've seen a significant pickup in risk appetite. Um, so you have seen compression in credit spreads, volatility settling, you've seen rotation into cyclicals, um, you've seen up in sorry, down in quality shifts. So my sense is that the, the key challenge from here is, what are we going to get in terms of the macro? Are you still going to get disinflation without growth damage? Um, and what is the market pricing? And from here, in our view, it's going to be more bumpy because the disinflationary uh, momentum is definitely starting to, to, to kind of come off a bit. We've seen that with recent data, and it's better reflected. 
um, in markets already. So we are relatively neutral on risk, relatively neutral on both beta in equity and on duration, being a bit focused on portfolio construction, on balance, on specific areas which we think are attractive. Great stuff, uh, Christian. You you touched on something where you said, well, certain relationships that people have been used to um, uh, were breaking down. And that's what you found in your research. I think one of those relationships that we have to bring up uh, at this stage that I think a lot of portfolios have been very used to uh, and probably were surprised uh, about the breakdown last year is correlations between stocks and bonds. Uh, clearly, people have relied uh, so heavily on the 60-40 portfolio construction for uh, a few decades. But when you broaden the horizon and if you go back, say, 100 years or so, what people may be surprised to find is, of course, that actually most of the time correlation between stocks and bonds is actually positive, not negative. And so yeah, I'd love to for you to talk about this. I think you've written about this as well and, and kind of how you you see this relationship maybe in the short term, but actually also on a structural level, because as far as I can tell, and you know this much better than I do, as far as I can tell, there is some reflection of inflation. Inflation plays a role in this relationship. Uh, so I'd love to to hear your thoughts about this. Yeah, 100%. I think what we're learning and what, again, as you were saying, has been a bit surprising for investors is that the last 20 years, which have dominated um, most of our careers, I think are more the exception rather than a rule. I think these negative equity bond correlations have come from uh, a structural backdrop, uh, which was characterized by disinflation, by deflation in a lot of the places in the world, and, and very anchored inflation. And to me, one of the most important variables to watch here is inflation volatility. It's not just the level of inflation that matters. It's actually how predictable or unpredictable um, uh, inflation is. And we found actually that both um, the term premium in bonds and the equity risk premium, um, both of them react badly to inflation volatility. So it's something that for both of those assets um, actually um, uh, drives a correlated move. And, and my sense is that um, more inflation volatility in the next uh, 10 to 20 years is, is, is a decent base case. Uh, we need to acknowledge the three Ds. I think we all know the three Ds, decarbonization pressure, deglobalization pressure, and demographical challenges, which at the margin are leaning towards more inflation uncertainty. Uh, we can talk about those in detail. The magnitudes, we don't know exactly. Um, and certainly it shouldn't be as bad as most people are fearing with regards to stagflation and, and, and 70s. I don't think that's what you should pencil in. Um, you should think about higher inflation, uh, maybe a bit higher, a bit more unpredictable, which means the equity bond correlation probably will average closer to zero, um, maybe a bit positive. But what's important as an asset allocator is that's still quite valuable. <laughs> no, it's absolutely fine to be correlated at 0.1 or 0.2. You still have a huge diversification benefit, especially if occasionally when something extreme happens, you do get a benefit. Like think about the regional US banks crisis, where I think the bond market was incredibly reactive, rightly or wrongly. Um, and, and, and maybe that was just a, a bit of a Pavlovian reaction from the bond market. And, and eventually these type of protection values and systemic crises um, will, will disappear. But for now, the empirical evidence is despite high inflation, which we had at the beginning of the year, the bond market could help you with systemic risk. 
it probably won't help you as much with cyclical risk. Um, and, and that's what we know from history. When you have high inflation, exactly as you said, the central bank reaction function tends to be constrained. You don't have the ability for counter-cyclical buffering. The equity bond correlation, just based on a traditional growth shock, not like a bank's crisis, is probably not going to be as negative as we're accustomed to. Yeah, absolutely. Jim, what's on your mind? So, you know, listening to your your stuff and really, uh, I kind of mentioned this offline, but uh, I really find a lot of commonality um, in, in the way you think about the world coming from a very different perspective and a very different background. Maybe it's that that start you had in derivatives trading that that uh, binds us together. But um, when you talk about structural cycle, cyclical business cycle, and sentiment cycles, you know obviously these aren't independent cycles. They they influence one another considerably. In particular, uh, you know the business cycle during the past structural cycle, maybe twenty years, as you mentioned, thirty years, I would say, has been the business cycle has been dominant uh, because. The structural cycle has been one where the Fed and monetary policy has been dominant. So there, there's been a Fed put in the market that essentially um, allowed the business cycle to be what really ultimately mattered. Um, uh, and it was very two-dimensional in some ways. If you go back, uh, you have short periods where things diverge. But for the most part, that if you got the direction of the business cycle right, you got uh, the direction of the market quite right um, over those periods. I would argue during uh, this new structural cycle, which is one of uh, highly, I agree with you, high, uh, higher probability of higher uh, structural inflation, um, we can debate how, how high that inflation is going to be. But during periods of that, the Fed's less dominant um, because their two mandates in particular are opposing one another. Um, and through that process, um, the business cycle, you know, this is why stagflation is a problem, right? Uh, the, the business cycle uh, is is less predictive necessarily of, of equity market and risk outcomes. So it complicates these cyclical motions in the market and, and using them to, to predict. Um, and actually the structural moves uh, in, in the bigger picture um, end up becoming um, more dominant. Uh, you know, again, think 68 to 82, where the markets went nowhere, but GDP growth in real terms grew well above trend. Um, those are two things that are kind of, for most people, uh, very a very confusing concept. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of how you see, A, if you agree with that, and B, uh, how you see the business cycle and equity returns uh, performing relative to one another in this period. Do you think it will replicate something like 68 to 82, where uh, equity market performance can be very poor in real terms uh, relative to relative economic strength? And we'd love to hear your thoughts. Listen, very a lot to unpack here. I mean, let me start with this interaction structural cycle, business cycle, sentiment cycle. I agree they are affecting each other in real time. And we know that investors love to pull forward structural problems <laughs> and, and, and possibly exacerbate structural benefits um, like AI. It's a very good example. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. You shouldn't necessarily look at structural issues and say, oh, it's really far away. It won't affect markets in, in real time right now. But generally, the way I think about it is like your tactical, your dynamic asset allocation should focus on most of the variation in the sentiment and the business cycle. You, you, you know, the structural stuff you should try to address in your SAA, in your strategic allocation. And, and you can do that. I mean, like you were saying that the structural cycle um, yeah, to some extent affected the business cycle, but not really markets that much in the last 20 years. I would say the biggest trend in the structural cycle in the last 20 years was real yields. 
I think real yields trending down, providing a valuation tailwind. Um, um, and, and, and as a result of that, equity is probably doing much better, um, to your earlier point than, than what the economic picture actually, um, suggested. I think that that was a trend. I think you had like structural changes with regards to taxation, um, which allowed the corporate sector and tech, um, probably do much better than the economy. So there are a few things that, that bubbled in the background, but you're right. Um, there's also like this interaction with the structural cycle and the business cycle, which had a huge regime break. And it's funny how you explained that because we've done a bit of work on that recently, which to me um, came out with a very similar result to what you said. Um, but we actually um, used machine learning um, to come up with the same conclusion. Um, what we did is we actually developed a machine learning approach that looks at growth, inflation, and policy and tries to market time between equities and bonds and between cash and, and the 60-40 portfolio. And we saw exactly what you said. Because in the last 20, 30 years, inflation um, volatility has been so low. Um, if you run the machine learning model and you let it train, you train the machine just since the 90s, it will tell you the only thing you need to know is growth. Like it's all about growth, forget about inflation, because there was no inflation volatility. And growth and policy were linked. In other words, if growth was getting too strong, you got policy tightening, even if there was not much inflation pressure. Um, so that was a quite weird regime. But if you take that whole machine learning exercise back to 1950, where pre the 1990s, you had a lot of inflation volatility, exactly to your point, suddenly the, the model will say, look out for inflation. That is the destructor of your portfolio. Because as we discussed earlier, in high inflation periods, equities and bonds go down together. So suddenly the tail risk is shifting completely, uh, where inflation, according to our machine learning model, is possibly a bigger risk than growth over the long run. So I think you're right. We have to think about a bit of a regime shift in the next 10 to 20 years. And I would also agree that um, inflation volatility um, is likely to be higher and got to drive more asset price variation. Um, if it's going to be more important than growth remains to be seen. Um, I think I would say it just gets more importance and it, it comes down to the growth inflation mix. If you have the risk of falling into stagflation, then inflation will matter more than growth. And that's a bit like what we've been dealing with in the last year and a half. I think if it's, a, if it's kind of more the, 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 the nuances, how much inflation uh, you generate for how much growth, I think there can be occasionally equal importance on both of those. To answer your question on the 60s to 80s, I find that's a very interesting um, discussion. I think for sure, like what we found in our research as well, there are so-called lost decades. There are periods where asset prices just don't go anywhere in real terms. And you were better off probably putting your money into consumption or cash, <laughs> if that makes sense. And there is a risk that we are going in the next 10 to 20 years into a structural macro backdrop that is much less friendly to asset owners. What I would say, though, is if you split the 60s to 80s into two periods, like the 60s and the 70s, that's a very different asset outcome. The 60s were actually very good for asset investing, in particular for uh, risk-adjusted returns. The 60s were remarkable with regards to the, to, to the low volatility you had. The 60s were one of the lowest volatility periods um, in terms of macro um, uh, on record. And actually, if you look at S&P realized volatility, you also had like one of the longest low vol regimes. I remember this. I wrote a report on this some time ago 
one of the longest lower regimes on record. So while the returns on equities were not particularly attractive, the risk was also not very high. So as a Markowitz investor, you could say it was fine. No doubt the 70s destroyed any return you accumulated. Um, but I would say it always comes down to structurally, the to me, the, the fight between uh, growth and inflation structurally. Like you have uh, on the growth side, currently, in my opinion, two major drivers that are fighting AI and population growth. I think AI has a lot of upside optionality on productivity. Population growth is an inevitable drag on growth globally, um, especially uh, in Europe and China and so on. And then you need to look at inflation. I think you have the structural uh, factors we discussed earlier, the 3Ds, but then you have, again, the impact of technology. Yeah, um, I think technology is, is going to be a key driver of what happens with inflation, but also what central banks will do. Because ultimately, uh, which one of my col colleagues, Jeff Curry, always told me, um, is inflation is a political phenomenon. So uh, a lot can be done to get inflation under control, and, and that makes it so difficult. With everything I know right now, I'm not very confident, <laughs> because we know that um, there could be huge tax incentives uh, with regards to uh, all kinds of problems in the world that need to be solved. Um, um, some of them are there, like maybe the Inflation Reduction Act with renewable energy investment, but it's going to take time. And in a lot of cases, unfortunately, um, it might not be enough. I think the key, I, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said, um, but I think the key is, uh, I, I think way too often we talk about inflation as one thing. Um, and I do think um, you have inflation as a function of supply and demand, which again, relates to that business cycle piece, which again has been what inflation has been about really the last 30, 40 years um, and why that data that you were looking at in the machine learning model that you mentioned uh, really saw inflation as uh, not the critical component. But if you go to other periods, um, uh, you have inflation that's much more tied to structural phenomenon. And those are political, you, you mentioned. Um, I agree, but the key difference I would I would kind of highlight is that political doesn't mean that anything can happen um, in the short period, maybe. But a lot of these political reactions are a function of reactions to much bigger things. Uh, in my 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 opinion, uh, inequality. Right? We've had this some dramatic increase in inequality, which has been driven by Federal Reserve dominance and and monetary policy driving money to capital for forty years. So we had a model that essentially muted. Um, and that by, by definition also created deflation, right? Cause we sent money to capital, which created technological development, globalization, et cetera, right? We, we created a deflationary machine, which ironically was driven by the fed. So the fed could then go business, uh, you know, stimulate, um, and, uh, whenever they needed use their fed. But the problem is the cost was inequality. And the more you get these, in, uh, these inequalities in the world, the more you start getting populism, which we see globally, these things are not just somebody deciding politically, oh, we're going to have populist policies. It's a function of uh, people pushing back on structural cyclical issues. So, uh, and those inflationary pressures are not going away. I think you see them in Europe. We see them here in the US, labor rights, uh, deglobalization, protectionism, et cetera. And those are the things that happened during the 60s and 70s. That's what drove the structural inflation. And that's why I, you know, I would argue that this inflation is different. Um, and it's not going away tomorrow. Um, and it can't be muted by the Fed. Ironically, you can argue that the Fed is going to exacerbate these issues and is exacerbating them by driving um, 
you know, a lot of the, the you know, I, used, I say they used to send money to Planet Palo Alto, which is like, you know, the technology center of the world, um, uh, you know, and send us back uh, deflationary goods. Um, now they're taking money away from capital, from, from corporations. And structurally, that's inflationary. So it's an interesting, uh, you know, these two inflationary, there are two separate inflationary pressures that have very different effects on the model. Um, and we often lump them together and assume the Fed can control both um, or, you know, the central banks can control both when one is really um, not only not controllable by central banks, but uh, they can often exacerbate it structurally. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts and, and yeah, listen, it's a very interesting argument. I mean, definitely the real yield is a key driver of short-term disinflation pressure and long-term inflation risk. Because exactly as you said, if you push up the real yield, you constrain investment, um, which eventually can come up with technological revolution um, and or supply. Um, and I think we've had underinvestment into resources for other reasons. It wasn't even related to the cost of capital. It was related to ESG regulations, etc. That has been costly and possibly will be costly um, because it means that you have the marginal um, swing producer having shifted back into the Middle East and, and, and that means more oil price volatility, exactly as you said. I think that's one example um, where you have the real yield changing and the reversal, as you were calling it, of this kind of Fed shift in the last cycle, pushing down real yields, driving income inequality on the one hand, but creating a lot of innovation um, in, in Palo Alto and, and in tech. I agree. Like, well, It remains to be seen in the next few years how this AI revolution will deal with these higher real yields. So far, so good. If you look at valuations of AI beneficiaries in the last uh, three to six months, it's been remarkable. Last year, you remember this, the Nasdaq was trading in lockstep with real yields. So as real yields went up, you actually had um, you know, the valuations of those stocks suffer a lot. Whereas in the last three to six months, that relationship has broken down. And we were thinking a lot about that. Why is that? Is that on the one hand that the longer term growth optimism that's embedded in these AI beneficiaries has gone up so much that it's counterbalancing the real yield increases, which means the cost of capital for those shares, for those companies, is actually stable and they're, 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 they're lucky uh, because investors essentially were happy to lower the required return. Or is there some mispricing that's, that's, that's due to be unwound? Um, and we also have to consider that use obviously uh, the private markets industry has accumulated trillions of dry powder, which is still from the last cycle. Um, and they're still looking to deploy that. So, so there's another cushion here for these higher real yields. So, so we'll, we'll remain to be seen like if this higher cost of capital will actually stifle the supply side. And while we kind of get demand under control in the next few months, like eventually you have supply issues returning. But to me, the, the thing I'm struggling the most with is really what that technological progress really will be. Um, because that's, to me, a debate which has a huge range of outcomes currently. No matter who you speak to, I think there's all kinds of views what AI might mean for the world, um, but also other technological um, kind of uh, cycles that are bubbling in the background. Think about like obesity drugs. Think about like renewable energy. Um, where there's been a real turn, um, like uh, renewable energy has had a real setback and suddenly like healthcare has had a huge re renaissance. So it feels like all these technology cycles are bubbling in the background 
And I agree with you. Like, it's good to be skeptical and it's good to uh, look at history uh, in terms of how often these technology waves disappointed. But it, it, to me, will be critical as soon as you look beyond the next two years, what will be the growth impact of technology and what will be the inflation impact. And I agree with you. Will they have enough money <laughs> to actually invest? And uh, th that's, a, that's a really important question as well. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Again, um, it's fascinating how, how you're coming at it from a different perspective, but uh, we, we kind of see eye to eye at a couple of these things. The, the thing with these structural effects um, is there is such a lag. And uh, as you mentioned, there's so much kind of money from the last cycle still pushed in, forcing maybe the last wave, right, of technological development. The, the problem we often see is, you know, everybody always thinks, oh, well, this time it's it's different. This technology is going to change, uh, you know, the inflationary pressures. Look at what's happening. Uh, it's, it's a new technology that's nothing like we've ever seen before. But I mean, since the invention of the wheel, we've seen things that have never been seen before that have changed uh, the course of human history. And um, I think the thing that people often don't appreciate is how important it is to continue to breathe oxygen into uh, those things. In other words, money um, into that. And, uh, you know, ideas take much longer to come to fruition. Uh, I would argue uh, the Amazons and Ubers and Teslas of the world would never have existed without 0% interest rate. And, and the more you pull 0% interest rates, the more you pull that money away from that system and structurally have to as a function of populism and all these other structural inflationary pressures, the more those, those, I, those ideas will still remain and still secularly change the world, but at a, just a much slower pace. Um, and, and and I think that's a critical point. It's a very good point. I think one other thing I find really interesting is if you look at the US in the last uh, cycle, like to me, what's been so remarkable is the combination of innovation and conglomeration. It's not just that you had a technolo a technological progress, which was investable, but actually some of the largest cap companies gave you access to the technology revolution. And I think the US has been very good in that, but it also means as a result of that, these large companies now, they are very healthy because um, that's the remarkable thing. The, they have no debt, very little debt. Uh, they are cash generative. That's a big difference to the tech bubble. Um, I think uh, during the tech bubble, you're absolutely right. Cost of capital was critical and 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 to some extent, uh, you know, it contributed to the bubble. No, um, but but I think this time around, um, you have these incumbents that actually come from an incredible um, uh, position of strength. Again, as you said, because of last uh, cycle, so it's a lagged effect, um, and that might disappear soon if they make wrong investments, if they put too much money into the wrong projects. We know the R and D spent from these kind of large tech companies is absolutely mind-boggling. There's billions being spent. And, and then you ask yourself, <laughs> what, what's coming out of that? And, and I agree with that. We need to see in the next few years if they spend in the right places and generate uh, revolutions that are more meaningful for society and for the problems we were discussing earlier. I think at the margin, it will be highly path-dependent. The way I think as a result of that, um, in terms of asset allocation about that, is you want to create a portfolio that deals with the risks, uh, but also gives you upset options to the opportunities. And the biggest threats to your portfolio will always be inflation and stagnation. Um, so you need to find ways in your portfolio to address those, and preferably, as I mentioned earlier, via SAA. 
because it's a structural cycle risk and it can take a long time to actually manifest itself in asset prices. So, so, so that's the way I think about it. I just want to have these uh, kind of ways to tilt the portfolio uh, without being too aggressive on taking a view on these things. Jim, before you chime in, I just want to maybe on on while we're on the inflation uh, discussion, and then we can move on to to the kind of more investment side of things. I think there's a couple of other things that you already kind of touched on, uh, Christian. That that I just wanted to to highlight. I mean, one is of course uh, demographics, right? We we see the the boomers leave, and we see the zoomers uh, say hello to the workplace, and they may certainly not have the same. Uh, views about um, working hours and 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 things like that that their parents did. So that's kind of one thing. The other thing we see at the moment, uh, which we haven't seen for a while, is unionization. We see at the moment the auto workers in the U.S. demanding forty percent increase. That will have to be dealt with as well. And then perhaps the most important one for people like yourself, Christian, that lives in London, and that is the the new one that you could refer to as unhappy hour. Because I've just learned today that the biggest British pub owner, they have announced that they're going to put up what's called polite notices, warning drinkers that during peak hours, the cost of a pint is going to go up by 20 pence, which is another kind of inflation. Now, what we saw in in hotels and in airlines, you know, at peak times, yeah, prices go up. Now we see this in day-to-day stuff where suddenly your, your beer is... 20% higher during this hour. It's a little bit of a cheek point here, but it's also, I think, an important point because you talked about unpredictable inflation, right? And I think if some of these new, I wouldn't call it technology, but if some of these new things are happening, even to this kind of inflation, that certainly is not going to make it easier for us to real to find out what is the real inflation in society. I think you make a good point. And I always call the last 20 years the age of abundance. Everything was available at your fingertips, often at a discount if you looked somewhere online. And we're entering an age where there will be scarcity. Um, And I think scarcity will be there because uh, of supply side issues. And sometimes they will create scarcity because they know there's demand like this pop and the same we've seen here in the summer, I can tell you, <laughs> this was an expensive travel season. Everyone I speak to here in London is complaining, coming back from the summer holidays, how expensive it was. So I feel like you're absolutely right. Um, there will be more unpredictable inflation in real time and over time. And that's what we're dealing with. And I think it's a it's shift for the consumer um, and it's a shift for um, investors. I think ultimately, some of the things are faster moving, some of them are, s- are slower moving. Um, I would say the demand-driven inflation is faster moving and 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 what you're talking about is the perfect example. Like peak hour, there's a lot of demand, but the same supply. Um, but there's not a supply issue here, I would say. It's just, you know, more demand. And then there's the slow-moving stuff, which is to me scarier. What you were mentioning with regards to changes in the demographics and the workforce, like the dependency ratio. I think that's a very important metric to track. Everywhere in the world, the dependency ratio is coming down. Um, in China, in the US, in Europe, to different degrees. So how many people are actually in the in the workforce, are the people that are contributing um, to, 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 to kind of uh, the overall GDP and, and uh, how many people are retired? And, and I think that matters from two perspectives. First of all, the people that, that are retired, 
they're spending more. They're spending their savings. They have more demand. They are the people that are going on holidays <laughs> that are causing us these uh, incremental costs. And, and at the same time, they're selling assets. Guess what? Um, the dependency ratio means that they have to rethink how much equity do I actually want to have considering I'm closer to retirement and possibly they might not even want to take duration risk anymore. Um, they might want to lower their duration um, because they're getting closer to um, their peak consumption. And and then, so they're driving asset price kind of disinflation and real economy inflation. And then you have the labor force that is shrinking and getting more bargaining power. And that comes at a time which, absolutely right, as you said, there is societal shifts in attitude towards work. Um, which comes post-COVID, which comes with different generations. So I absolutely agree on everything you said. That is something we need to deal with. That's something we need to find an equilibrium for. And for the next few years, it looks definitely scary. I think uh, you know one of the most interesting things that very few people highlight and why cycles like these can continue to persist is that simple fact that stratification is not just a function of wealthy versus poor, but almost by definition, you can flip it horizontally versus generation because when people come into the workforce, they are labor, right? The millennials on down have been labor as part of this period of inequality. They are the ones that are, by definition, you know, uh, they're 40% of the wealth creation and household formation of baby boomers at this time in their generation. So they, as a generation, have had a completely different experience, right? Because they were labor during this period. Whereas baby boomers have had the exact opposite period and represent the top of the stratification. So it's not just you know inequality, right? It's generational inequality. And that happens again and again through cycles because you come out, you're young, and you are labor. Um, and I think that's a, a critical point to why cycles work like this and why they perpetuate themselves again and again. So I think it's a, it's a very kind of interesting point. I think the point you make about... Um, the unevenness, and that, that Niels also mentioned about the unevenness of inflation, um, speaks to other areas of of much less, you know, again, uh, more, much more dimensionality to the system going forward, where there is in inflation. Um, not only is inflation uneven, but when you have deglobalization as a function of protectionism, like we're seeing as well, that creates a different unevenness, an unevenness uh, across borders, um, uh, unevenness of different types of goods. Right, that might be able to be produced somewhere that might have more success. Um, it also creates new puts, new areas of strength where maybe those things were were uh, not as strong. Think sixties and seventies and OPEC and the OPEC put that existed during that period. Why did that exist during that period, but didn't exist uh, more recently until the last couple of years? Was was because we had globalization. There was no incentive to flex muscles and to push back and to try and. Uh, you know, uh, compete in that regard, uh, and it was harder to now with less uh, dominance. When more deglobalization, we're a competitive system, and guess what? Resources and entities that have control over them now can flex their muscles more. Not a surprise we're seeing that from OPEC again now in a different way, right? And from other entities, and that drives different types of volatility and performance in different asset classes in a dramatic way. So it's a much more multi-dimensional system. Um, and and uh, speaks to, I, I've heard you speak about the importance of active management going forward, as opposed to just this passive riding the business cycle, riding the broad uh, performance of beta. And so uh, I couldn't agree more. I'd love to hear your thoughts more about how to approach active, what you mean by that, and, and kind of take it from there. 
Yeah, I mean, as you as you uh, mentioned already, I think we've had this boom in passive, and I think static sixty forty was a very tough benchmark. We have to be completely clear: if you had that for the last twenty thirty years, it it would have delivered phenomenally for wealth creation. And uh, I think broadly, like the active management industry had other issues, performance related, stock picking, etc., which again comes back a bit to what we're discussing here, because. Since the 90s, you had like these two big bear markets um, where everything became correlated and stock picking didn't necessarily matter. Or if it if you did right, it was timing-wise very difficult. Good companies became bad investment and vice versa. And I feel like it it ultimately meant that you had these highly concentrated bear markets and 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 outside of that, nothing happened and it was just fine to be long. And and I think now we might have more frequent bear markets. And we will have uh, probably more opportunities both to time the market cycle and I think also for stock picking um, because you probably won't have these extreme crises where literally everything gets wiped out, like where the equity market is down 50% and and people just start fresh. I think it will be smaller bear markets possibly. Uh, they might even be slower, um, not the high wall of wall we've seen but they will still be there and I think they will be timeable. I think this comes back a bit to what also you guys um, uh, talk a lot about in the past is trend following. I think there is definitely the potential that macro momentum will be more persistent because inflation is more persistent, inflation clusters. And and that might actually mean that you have much more opportunities to capture cycles because the challenge is one of all made it incredibly difficult to capture cycles for like tactical allocators. And you have to obviously consider that the market has become smarter and smarter. I mean, you have to be completely clear, like there's machine learning tools, there's all kinds of things you can do, which means that um, uh, if you had information to digest, the market is digesting it faster and faster, the information aggregation, which, which means, however, if the macro momentum takes time to build and it's not obvious what's going on here, like a financial crisis, uh, a tech bubble is, you know, like I think then there's more momentum to capture. So so I'm definitely of the view that um, there is a case for more active management. How to do it will be interesting <laughs> because people have shifted more passive and a lot of the asset allocators have been getting more skeptical with regards to uh, market timing, the academic literature obviously contributing to that. And I think to me, a lot of the clients I speak to are shifting in terms of complexity more towards the complexity of portfolio construction, but not the complexity of market timing. Um, and I think there will be a shift again where people will invest more again in market timing tools, in market timing abilities, and and generally in 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 trying to understand um, the business cycle. Because if I think about risk budgeting, um, I would say that a lot of the the investors we speak to that l have really large pools of capital. A large, a small proportion of their capital will actually be actively market timing. A lot of that will actually be focused on um, portfolio construction, like building portfolios that are robust, that are well diversified, that identify attractive risk premia. And I think there will be a bit of a shift more towards market timing. I think. Yeah, sounds a lot like uh, sixty-eight to eighty-two, right? Three, three recessions, but overall GDP growth was uh, above trend in real terms. Um, despite three recessions. And you had, uh, again, a market that went nominally nowhere, but lost 67% of its value in real terms over that 14-year period. But to your point, much less 
uh, volatility actually when you when you look at it um, uh, over that period uh, because not only did the market go sideways, but uh, you know during those recessions they were kind of more shallow market dips, et cetera. So kind of speaks to a similar uh, copy there. Not that everything is the same. Um, active management did incredibly well during that period. It was the introduction of uh, hedge funds broadly uh, for a reason, um, and, and macro funds did very well. The I think part that's unique that's different because it's always it always rhymes, but there's always secular changes that make it different is the introduction of derivatives. And uh, derivatives didn't nobody has really talked about this, but really didn't exist last time we had inflation. So we've never had a time of structural inflation with derivatives. And I think there's having there's a major feedback loop that people are are missing here that are, that is structurally changing outcomes. Um, when I was thinking about your cycles, the one thing, and again, this is coming from my bias, right? This is my world. The one thing I think that is not really encapsulated in those cycles is the structural cyclical effects of supply and demand um, on the derivative side, on um, on, on the index level uh, in particular, and, and the effects that are ha- that that's happening. Um, I think that's muting volatility at the index level, right? We have massive structure product issuance, which is dramatically increasing as interest rates go higher, if you think about that, you know, as, as interest rates are going to five and a half, you can get a much better structured yield that is much more competitive, particularly against a market that's more risky. Ironically, that's driving vol compression, but it's not driving it across the market. It's driving it specifically at the S&P 500 level where that structured product issuance is having. And we know that because we're getting historic dispersion. We saw the same thing in 2017 with massive supply of vol. So ironically, this dovetails back into the active versus passive thesis. The reality is you're less likely to do well from a beta perspective, but you're going to get volatility outside of the center where there aren't volatility centers. It's not a surprise that the volatility is happening in AI where there's short vol, right? It's, it's the most short vol center at, in a market where the middle is pinned. It's causing rotation because by definition, the index is pinned and things are going up. That means the other things have to go the other way. And so that thesis of active management becomes much more pertinent even than the macro uh, dictates because structurally there are, there are reasons that are that it's uh, being exacerbated as well. So um, I couldn't agree more. I think that the, the thing that's so important is this, this index dominance. So many people from a fundamental perspective are still thinking about the index as the conglomeration of the parts, but the index is often the tail, the, the dog actually, not the tail. Um, and I think that's having a significant difference. Anyway, with your derivatives background, I thought I'd I'd go there. But um, yeah. But Jim, can I just throw something in? Because you guys may not have seen it, even though I'm sure you see everything. I think today it was announced that they're going to have now an ETF that uh, sells puts zero-day options on the NASDAQ. I mean, what could possibly go wrong at this stage, right? Right. And all of these things are, you know, reflexively having, but, but uh yeah, it could even dampen volatility more. And that's the part why, I mean, I've heard you mention, uh, Christian, that, that uh, you know, equity volatility, right, you would expect to, to pick up. And, and I would have agreed from a macro perspective historically, but I think it's these structured products and, and vol compression that's coming from other places in the market that are having a unique effect relative to history. Um, anyway, we'd love to yeah. know your thoughts, especially given your derivatives trading back. Oh. No, 100%. I mean, listen, the the, the, the supply-demand uh, ins and outs on structured products, they definitely play a role. And and I agree with you that 
you know, these type of rates moves we're currently having are driving significant changes in structural products flows uh, away from carry towards capital guaranteed products. So you kind of change uh, very much the demand versus supply for wall. Um, I think to me, there's two very interesting things to mention just, just from a wall point of view. You mentioned one of them is dispersion. In line with the active management we discussed earlier, I think I would expect dispersion just to 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 kind of be higher in the coming years. And it's it's both related to innovation, I think, which is a bit the story that has exacerbated dispersion recently. But it will also be related to what we discussed earlier, like shortages on supply. If you got the right stuff that people need, you're gonna have pricing power. And and that will vary. Now think about the dispersion that has been driven in oil oil versus the rest last year. So it's not just dispersion on tech. Uh, It's last year been um, also linked to that. So I think dispersion will become more common ground because you have this type of scarcity that occasionally will drive large dispersions and winners and losers. There will be kind of companies that suffer from higher energy. There will be beneficiaries. But the other thing I find very interesting is is also the autocorrelation um, of S&P. Um, if you do track autocorrelation of S&P, that's changed materially and, again, looked very different in the 60s compared to, to what we've seen in the last, two, two, uh, two, last 20 years. And, and the last three years look more like the 60s, 70s. So in other words, um, you're starting to see a, a regime shift here where, to some extent, because of what I mentioned earlier, like the, 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 or what you mentioned as well, the central bank put being less reactive, you get more autocorrelation in returns, which then helps trend following. But that also means that um, you essentially don't get sharp reversals, which often drive volatility because you move more slowly. And that can also mean that you're you're dealing with a slightly different ball regime um, uh, structurally. So I, I, I 100% agree. If you generate macro momentum that, ta- that takes time to digest and, and you generally have a base level of higher macro volatility, that actually uh, means less wall of wall. And, and uh, I always say like, like it means that you need to think about carefully about trading shorter dated options because you accumulate much more risk. Like it's essentially about accumulating risk, which increases the potential to move beyond the strike. Uh, whereas in the short run, um, it takes time to move beyond the strike. And I think that means that, uh, yeah, you want to rethink how you hedge. Um, you want to rethink about the value of longer dated options. You want to rethink um, uh, how far out of the money um, you want to go. But I think. The, the important thing is as well is, is the volatility paradox in all of that. Like the reason why you had these extreme kind of swings, like this high wall of wall, is the volatility paradox where these Goldilocks regimes, which we started uh, the, 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 the conversation with, they generated, like you mentioned 17 at some point, uh, they generated these low wall uh, carry bubbles, which then unwound. And that generated a lot of wall of wall and a lot of wall on average. Um, but, but if you don't go into these carry bubbles anymore, you won't see the unwinds of them anymore. And if you have higher macro volatility and, and less frequency of these Goldilocks regimes, that means that exactly to your point, there's a good chance that, um, yeah, you, you on average will actually be less volatile most of the time. So, so I think like uh, the best way to put it is let's, less bifurcation, less frequency of high wall versus low wall regime, uh, more, more time spent in the middle. And that's been the remarkable thing about the last 20, 30 years. You were either in a high or low wall regime, very little t- uh, time spent in the middle, whereas now you might spend much more time in the middle. Yeah, I, c- I couldn't agree more. It's uh, the, 
it, we're we're turning back the clock to an older regime. Uh, it definitely feels like, and and again, that that dispersion and, and the 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 center holding essentially and not being dominant, right? Uh, to ha- to the out- total outcome, right? Um, and more being uh, tied to what happens on on the outside of the dispersion, uh, you know, essentially of, of the market is um, is a critical outcome. Um, I mean, again, we saw oil at 30 some percent of the index, right? Uh, at the peak in 1982, um, I think it's at 3%, right? Right now. So crazy things could happen. You could make a tremendous amount of money just getting the rotation right, despite the market really maybe going nowhere for some time and being less, uh, less critical to outcomes. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, couldn't agree more with, with how you, how you see that. The last thing I would I would kind of love to kind of bring up is is uh, kind of a bigger picture one. You know, Ray Dalio recently talked about kind of the you know the debt and and the size of it, right? Uh, you know, we've had others like Gunlock come in and talk about how they don't find bonds attractive here because of what might be coming uh, as a result of the amount of issuance and and what and the and the cost of of that uh, on on the budget. Love to hear your thoughts about how that might affect things in the next five to 10 years. Uh, is it relevant? How do we, how do we navigate that? And what is that likely to mean for us and, and global outcomes? Definitely uh, a concerning conversation. I mean, the way I think about it, first of all, um, I agree with the idea that um, cash is still a key competition for bonds where we are. Um, that's both because of the inversion of the yield curve and because of these issues, um, you are taking risk. Um, you are taking credit risk uh, in corporate bonds. You're taking uh, some type of sovereign risk and or bond risk premium repricing risk in, in, in government bonds. And again, that's new um, uh, with regards to government bonds, at least. Uh, we've been through Italy. We've been through the e- European sovereign crisis, which was very different, as you know, um, because it was a political crisis, not a real sovereign crisis. So I think we want to think about it as follows. Um, you are dealing probably with higher debt-to-GDP ratios in the coming years. And I think at Jackson Hole, I, I think Eichengreen, he he kind of made uh, this presentation saying that um, we will have to deal with that. It's unlikely we'll get these primary surpluses to get these debt-to-GDP ratios uh, down. And, and I mean, guess what? We had the biggest fiscal expansion since World War II. It's going to take time to, to kind of get a, a more normal debt-to-GDP ratio. So someone needs to buy that debt. And I think that is really the discussion that needs to be had um, because it really depends on the clearing price, how much of a problem that will be. And it again comes back a bit to our conversation on growth structurally. How much real growth are you going to generate relative to the cost of debt? Um, so if you have AI <laughs> generate a huge amount of productivity and GDP growth, maybe you're less worried about that. But as you correctly said, and I agree with, we don't know, it could take time. Um, so for now, the main variable that's moving is the real yield. And we need to understand where this will settle. Um, and the reason why there's so much concern in the marketplace right now about that is that there is a bit of an endogeneity where the higher the real yield go, goes, the more you're worried about debt sustainability, the more it pushes up uh, the real yield and the bond risk premium you should ask for. And how do you stabilize that? Um, We know it from Japan. um, It comes (laughs) via the central bank. 
But that comes back to our earlier discussion that they are actually having an, another problem to deal with right now, and they're actually doing QT. Then who else could stabilize the back-end yield? Um, it could be international buyers of treasuries. But we know to our earlier discussion on deglobalization, there's less demand there. So then it comes down to one important variable to me, exactly like in Japan, households. Um, in Japan, households are among the biggest buyers um, of, of JGBs and or providers of financing for the government in different ways. And the problem in the US is that the household allocation to equities is at all-time highs. And um, it's been a very popular thing to own equities um, for the long run. And the bond allocation is very low. And to me, the key challenge will be to get households to buy those lo longer duration bonds. And I actually think that the value proposition for bonds as a long-run investor in the US is not terrible, at least for tips. I don't like necessarily the yield that's on the 10-year bond um, because I don't think the break-even that's priced there is particularly appealing. Um, but if I look at the real yield in the US being at 2%, where you get essentially paid 2% per annum to protect your purchasing power for the next decade, that's an attractive proposition. Um, you need to consider the fact that yields will go to 3%. That's your key risk, um, that they go to 3% first until you kind of harvest your money. So mark-to-market risk is the consideration, which probably matters for a lot of institutional investors. But for end investors that are really buying to hold, I think these tips are already at levels that should attract household demand. The challenge is that it's just not a particularly um, sexy investment. <laughs> no, uh, like for households, it's not like necessarily um, the type of investment that uh, you see that upside convexity. Protecting purchasing power is just not as exciting as buying AI beneficiaries. And that's why it's going to be difficult to find that clearing price. At what level of real yield do you cap that upside because the alternative cap, we all know what the alternative cap is, is essentially the government having to consolidate and fiscal austerity, um, that you do actually get some type of negative feedback loop from the bond market to fiscal spending, a bit like what happened in Europe. And that would be not very good at all. But what I find so interesting about the tips market is in that scenario, I think it would do very well because you would obviously have a bigger stagnation risk because the government would have to kind of uh, on the fiscal side be much more restrictive. And, and that's why one of our favorite assets um, to, to focus on um, uh, kind of for long-run investors has been the tips market um, to, to essentially look at longer-dated inflation-protected securities as, a, as an overlay hedge for the portfolio. Similar to the 1970s, which is a very interesting... Exactly right. <laughs> it didn't exist at the time. There's right. another market that didn't exist in the 70s, and I absolutely agree. Um, in the 70s, if you would have had tips, and we actually have a back test where we estimated how tips would have traded if they existed. Um, there's like this backcast from the New York Fed um, that we replicated, and it showed the tips would have been a very good investment, um, especially if the real yield is already high, i.e. central bank tightenings behind us. There's a, there's a very interesting asymmetry um, that, that, that tips can offer you. Yeah, to your point, if if, if the uh, U.S. consumer is not going to buy the debt, at least at these levels, at least not at uh, you know until they get to higher higher levels, uh, you know, it seems most likely that the Federal Reserve is going to have to you know do what the you know, the JGB you know the 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 Japanese central bank apologies uh, did, and that can't be good for more inflation either. At the end of the day, um, if they're cyclically stimulating as opposed to trying to 
do the opposite. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, fascinating times. And, and there is a tail out there in the bond market. And I think other major investors like Dahlia are also beginning to realize that. The, the challenge, of course, as well, is the fact that, and, and coming from the trend-following world, of course, believing in human behavior, it doesn't help that governments and central banks have basically been punishing anyone who wanted to own a bond in the last 20 years. And now they're coming out saying, oh, you, we really need you to line up. So it, to me, it's more likely that they're going to come in with some kind of policies forcing pension funds and banks and so on and so forth to buy a lot of the debt. But that is another discussion, which I hope we will be able to have with you, Christian, since this was uh, amazing. Before we close out, I had a couple of things I wanted to bring up. One is um, just a, this is really just a curious uh, on on my part. You talk a lot about cycles, and I'm interested because you didn't mention the interest rate cycle. Do you believe that there is such a thing as a 40-year interest rate cycle? 100%. As I mentioned, you have the sentiment cycle, the business cycle, the structural cycle, and there are three dimensions to each of those. Um, so growth, inflation, and policy. And policy encapsulates the interest rates. So there's a structural rate cycle, there's a, uh, the business cycle in rates, and there's a sentiment cycle in rates. So, so to me, it's like a multidimensional assessment. So you have like three dimensions with regards to the cycles, three dimensions with regards to the variables um, in each of those. Sure. Maybe as we close out uh, now, since we're at the hour mark and, and we appreciate uh, your time, if you want, and this is completely up to you, one thing that we didn't bring up specifically, but we talked around it a lot, is the series of paper you did called the Dynamic Balance Bear. Uh, if you want to talk a little bit about it, just to explain what it is, maybe people can go and look it up. Uh, feel free to do that. And then any other things that you feel that we forgot to uh, to bring up in our conversation, uh, Christian. Um, so, Yeah. I mean, listen, I think this was incredibly comprehensive. I think we touched a lot of things that... Um, on my mind, and I think on a lot of investors' minds. The dynamic balance bear, I have also mentioned already our machine learning approach on dynamic asset allocation. I think um, essentially what we're doing is, um, because we also want to be part of that AI wave, <laughs> You know, we want to kind of apply more and more uh, techniques um, that are available to us in our investment problems. And this was one of the first attempts. And I've been very cynical about these things because I've I've seen a few structural regime breaks, to say the least, and we discussed a lot of them. So there's a lot of problems with these models, but we, we still gave it a shot. And remarkably, um, our machine did a decent job in adding value in the last 70, 80 years in terms of allocating simply based on some very, very low frequency data. So we didn't even try to be smart and being ahead of the market. We tried to use hard data only and, and try to assess where are you in the cycle and what should should you do. And we, we gave like GDP growth data, rates data, valuation data to a machine and did a relatively good job in allocating. What we found is it did a better job in timing inflation and interest rate cycles. It did not a good job in timing growth cycles because growth cycles have much more convexity to them. And that means it's you have to be fast, uh, whereas the interest rate cycles are much more trending um, and the inflation cycles. That's an interesting takeaway from that paper um, in line with our earlier discussion. Um, I think if you get more inflation volatility, it creates more tactical dynamic allocation potential that can be captured, whereas very different to the last 20, 30 years where these growth cycles are so fast in some cases that's very difficult to allocate. So so I think that's the key takeaways. If if anyone is interested, um, you know, that's that's available um, on our research portal. 
That's wonderful. Christian, this has been an awesome uh, conversation um, and we really appreciate sharing uh, you sharing all this knowledge. And of course, uh, from a trend following and volatility perspective, the fact that you think that there are definitely uh, room for these type of strategies in the in a portfolio makes it even better. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to uh, go and follow you, uh, we'll put some links up on the show notes page, of course. Um, because as our audience for sure will be able to tell from today's conversation, we are living in a truly global macro-driven world and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. Christian, thank you so much from Jim and me. Thanks for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our global macro series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.